You are listening to the audio from Life Community Church, located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. Today, Pastor Reed Bradley will take us through 1 Samuel chapter 24 in the series, The Sling, the Sword, and the Sovereign. We will now go to Pastor Reed Bradley to deliver the message. Man, I don't know about you all, but I am excited to get into God's Word this morning. I am just energized through the, the singing and, and lifting of our voices to the Lord in song. Man, it's just an incredible an incredible thing to be in the house of the Lord, to be gathered together with His people, to be singing together as one voice. Uh, it's, it's a taste of eternity right here and now. It's a wonderful thing. Let me go ahead and say a prayer for us as we approach God's Word. Lord God, I thank you so much for your Word and how you have preserved it for us, how you have kept it for your people throughout the generations so that we might hear from you, that we might know you, Lord Jesus, that we might come to you in confidence through the sacrifice, through the shedding of your blood. And we ask this morning as we come to your word that we would be attentive, that we would be ready and excited to listen and hear from you and to behold your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Welcome again this morning as we get ready to continue our series through the book of 1 Samuel. We're actually going to be in 1 Samuel 24, so I don't know if that first slide is incorrect. I think so. I think that is the slideshow from last week, so don't worry about that. Um, But we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to be going uh, on with the life of David. We have been going through, we did uh, chapter 16 our first week, we did 17, the uh, fight between David and Goliath last week. It was awesome. I, I really love the, the books of First Samuel through Second Kings. Uh, partially, I think perhaps uh, I just love story. Uh, I love a good story. I, I was raised on storytelling, uh, and this was always a portion of Scripture that really resonated with me. I, you could almost see it unfolding before you as if it were a movie or as if it were a great story uh, of old. And it is in many ways, but it's even better than just that because the Lord has preserved this for us to communicate to us about his glory, a greater story than any that has ever been told. And as we've looked through the story of David and we've seen him rise, we saw last week how he was willing to come in the name of the Lord and to be a champion for the people of God in their time of need. And that was, in fact, the reason that the Lord had anointed him, to, to be the king of his people, to serve as their champion, their go-between person, the one who would fight the battles for them. And as he went out, he was fulfilling that role even while he was still just a shepherd boy. Well, time went on, and before we get to our chapter today, we see that David is taken into the king's court, not as a warrior, but as a musician, as a harpist, as somebody who was skilled upon an instrument, and thus he would go and he would play before Saul to ease Saul's suffering and torment, 
And as he did this, he gained the affection of Saul, and he gained the affection specifically of the crown prince, Jonathan. They became knit together and the best of friends. And as that continued, David grew and became stronger and wiser and turned into a mighty warrior before the Lord. And he began to lead out the armies of Israel into battle and to win great victories against the Philistines. Uh, The scriptures in chapter 18 tell us that David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And this didn't go unnoticed by the people, and it certainly didn't go unnoticed by Saul. Saul began to see a rising David with the knowledge that he himself had been rejected. And jealousy began to take root, and that root turned into an open, festering wound, and it wasn't long before salt began to be rubbed into that wound. The people sang one time as David came back from battle, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul said, why does David get so many more than me? Paraphrasing a little bit, but that's basically what he said. And he began to wonder, and he began to keep his eye on David, and he began to realize that people seemed to love David more than they loved Saul. And he really was not okay with it, so he began to look for ways to maybe either lock David in as as his servant or to take David out. And either one was an okay option for Saul. He tried to bait David into becoming his son-in-law, he did it on one occasion, and David said he was unworthy and wouldn't be willing to do it. And then another one of Saul's daughters really liked David. A lot of people really liked David. It's not an unusual thing. And Saul recognized it, and he said, look, how about this? If you just go, and basically says, if you go circumcise a hundred Philistines, which, you know, you ha- they have to be dead in order for you to do that, Um, I'm not going to go into the details of circumcision or its processes, but the idea is go kill 100 Philistines. You do that, then that will count as sort of the bride price. Then you'll be worthy to become my son-in-law. And so David goes and he just does it. Like That's how it describes it in the scriptures. It doesn't give a big long account. It just says, and so David did. And he came back. He said, here you go. I don't know what Saul did with that afterwards, but David married the daughter And Saul was frustrated because it just didn't seem like anything he could do could slow David down. And it was really frustrating because not only could he not pin David down, he literally couldn't pin David down. On several occasions, he tries to spear him to the wall and David dodges and then still comes back and like stands between Saul and walls on a couple more occasions. It's kind of amazing. Uh, Whether David is just really brave or a slow learner, it's, it's difficult to say, but Saul clearly has it out for David, and at a certain point in time, David realizes, okay, this is, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I don't know how it wasn't really bad beforehand, but at this point, now, now is the breaking point, so David has to flee. And he, he leaves his wife, who is Saul's daughter, helps him escape. Jonathan, who is Saul's son, helps David escape. And David goes out into the wilds. And people who are disenchanted with Saul begin to rally around him, a small group. And and David, in many ways, becomes this sort of ancient Robin Hood-esque picture of a man, not directly fighting the people of Israel or fighting the king, but being hunted by him, and all the while going around protecting the people, fighting the Philistines, fighting the actual enemies of the people of God. 
And Saul, in all of this, hunts David. Many, many times he comes close, almost within reach of capturing David. And just so, a chapter earlier from where we're going to read, he almost catches up to David, and then he hears the Philistines are attacking. And so he diverts from his self-designated enemy, David, a wrong pursuit, and goes to his actual enemies, the Philistines, to battle against them, a pursuit that he was, in fact, anointed for. He goes, he fights the Philistines, he defeats the Philistines. It's great. And then he goes back to chasing after David. And here in the midst of a, a low and horrible time, in many ways for David's life, and a low and wicked ruling from Saul as king, who has not only hunted down innocent people, but has slaughtered priests, has made unlawful sacrifices, and many other horrible, horrible things, he begins to pursue him. And so with that in mind, with that background stated, we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin to read. We're going to read in chapter 24, and we're going to read starting in verse 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to consider this again like we did last week, where we're going to consider it in scenes, right? We're going to read a portion of the scripture, we're going to consider it, then we're going to read that next scene, and we're going to flow through the text in that way before we really begin to weigh the matter in our own hearts. So, chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall be, seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. We begin our scenario with a, with a strange thing, and I, I want you to consider it with this concept of, of surrendering to sovereignty. That here in, in the midst of what is going on, David is, is surrendering his right to act to the one who acts righteously. He's surrendering what is in his power to do to the Lord who has the right to exercise such a power. But we enter into this scene with a, a strange and unusual depiction, details that we're not usually privy to, where Saul goes and searches, and he is, he's in need of some royal relief, okay? He, we're not going to do too many uh, puns or jokes here, but the King James Version does 
describe this as he goes in to cover his ankles. So we'll, we'll let you think about it and think about how long he had to be in there in terms of what exactly he was doing. It was not exactly ambiguous. It was obvious. He was vulnerable. It's arguably the second most vulnerable position you can possibly be in. The first one being asleep. We see that later in Scripture. But it just so happens that by the providence of God, out of all of the caves in the wilderness, of which there are many in that area and in that region, the cave that he goes up to relieve himself in is the cave which David and his men are hiding. Now, they are completely mismatched against the army of Saul. Saul has 3,000 men. David's got like 600 or so. It's not an even match. David's got his mighty men. This is even a bit much for them, okay? There's, there's no way that in a head-to-head confrontation, David comes out ahead. And yet here, Saul is laid out before him. And what exactly do the people around him begin to say? They say, hey, look, this is what the Lord said. This is what the Lord said to him. Now, it would be tempting from a historical perspective to say, well, maybe, maybe God did say that. It's just not here, right? I mean, we don't know all the things that the Lord said to David or prophesied to David through Samuel. And I mean, that's true. However, the important thing is that God has preserved for us his word, and he's explaining these stories to us in such a way to drive home a point. And so if we consider that, and we consider what we have read in 1 Samuel, the first 23 chapters, we know God has not said any such thing to David about Saul. Now, he did say something close. He said something close to David. He said, go pursue the Philistines, your enemies. I'll give them into your hand. You do to them as you see fit. So there's a sort of jumping and connecting dots by the people, right? Well, the Philistines are your enemies. And Saul, let's be honest, he's really kind of just a Philistine at this point. I mean, he's murdering priests. He's trying to kill you with a spear against the wall. Seriously, David, guy's a Philistine. It's kind of hard not to argue that, right? And so, since he's a Philistine, transitive property, you can kill him now right? It's basically, you know, we're kind of, it's a sliding application, but the Lord has given him into your hand. And so you, so go ahead, David. Uh, Basically, that's what God said. And all of them agree. It's not the first time that David gets advice like this, specifically in relation to Saul. I mean, remember, all of these guys who are with David are all people that Saul has in some way or shape or form kind of cast out of society at this point. So nobody with David's camp is a fan of Saul, right? There's no Saul loyalists who are following David at this point. And so David receives this message, and he begins to act, and we watch, and you if you read this slowly and you're not familiar with the story, there's almost this sort of anticipation where he goes up and he cuts off a corner of the road. Stealthily, right? And you've just got to imagine, when he comes back with this, his men are extremely disappointed. This is not a proportionate risk, David. 
Okay, at any point in time, if Saul makes a noise, if he screams, if something happens, right, you've got an army of people outside the cave somewhere. You know they exist. It's not like Saul just wanders around and relieves himself in random caves by himself, right? He's got an army somewhere. We're outnumbered. If you're going to do this, this is an extreme risk to you. And the assumption is you use the risk to get the greatest game, which would be to kill Saul or take Saul hostage or do something. But we're not interested in this weird wardrobe malfunction thing that happens, right? He, you cut off a corner of the robe. And while it is a risk that doesn't match with the action, there is significance behind what is happening here. The robe, the idea of the robe, is extremely weighty in the book of 1 Samuel, that it represents an authority and a power and a position. It's much more than just the outer garment. It's not like if one of our coats gets torn, and you probably don't really notice or care all that much, right? It's missing a button, right? But the robe has taken a more central significance in 1 Samuel. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when God ultimately rejects Saul and his kingship, Samuel gives that message to Saul, and he goes to turn away, and Saul grabs onto his robe, and it tears. And Samuel turns back to him and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and given it to your neighbor who's better than you. There's a great significance in the, the tearing of the robe. And not only do we see it mentioned there, but we see it again as Jonathan embraces David, and Jonathan puts his own robe on David, which is a bizarre thing for the crown prince to be doing, the robe that is supposed to be his authority in his ascension to the throne, he puts it on David. And you could go on, but the point being that here we see in a sense of fulfillment of what Samuel had said earlier. And indeed, there's not much time left in Saul's reign. This is the, the climax of the kingdom has now officially transferred hands from you, Saul, to you, David. Now, there will still be a season where Saul is in power, and there will be a season where one of his sons is in power after him, but God has fully given over the authority and the right to rule to David in this sense. And yet, in the midst of all of these things, David has a burdened conscience. He's bothered by it. Now, we don't know when he began to approach Saul what exactly he was thinking. We probably could imagine a few things he'd be thinking. But we don't know if he intended to kill Saul as he approached and then decided not to. But we certainly would think, David, you, you didn't do what the men told you to do, which was kill them. I think most of us, if we're honest, would have said, yeah, we should just take the guy out. Seems like everybody agrees. That must be confirmation from the Lord. Let's get this on the road, right? Let's go. 
But not only does David not listen to the bad advice, he is still burdened even by what had happened. And in this moment, what I want you to consider is that David has refused to seize by force what God had guaranteed him by promise. That, that David was waiting for the Lord to act because he believed that only the Lord had the authority to remove this person who the Lord had anointed. That David, at this point, he's not anointed king. He's not, well, he is anointed king. He's not anointed king by the people of Israel. Let's, let's put it that way, right? He doesn't have the governmental power to match the Lord's anointing. And so it is not within his right to simply execute Saul. Though we would say that would certainly be justice. David is concerned with something more than just that. He, he gives to the Lord the right for vengeance, the right for judgment, the right to act. But the scene doesn't just end there. This is the action. This is the central point of it. But out of this, we get a couple pieces of dialogue. And so we want to continue reading here, picking back up in verse 8. After David also arose, remember Saul arose, left the cave. Now David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David here, he, he goes out and he gives the explanation of his actions, and he does it to Saul. And it centers around this idea of not only is he surrendering to the Lord in this, but he's trusting the one who judges justly, that he is trusting himself into the hands of the Lord, of Yahweh, of his God. Right? He trusts himself to the Lord. And he comes out in humility and grace. And I want you to see why. It's not for David's sake that David does these things. He didn't come out and he say, well, people told me to kill you, but it wasn't really a good political strategy for me. And so I didn't. 
people told me to kill you, but it would really make me seem like a bad guy to those people who are following you, and I kind of want them to think well of me, so I didn't do it. He says, I didn't want to raise my hand against you because you're the Lord's anointed. In other words, it's for the sake of the Lord, it's for the sake of God's glory, it's for the sake of God's kingdom that David is not willing to act here. This is really important, and we're going to hammer this a lot more later, that the desire for God's glory and the desire for God's kingdom is going to help us have a little bit of clarity on when we should be acting and when we should be waiting that there's a time to be courageous and there's a time to wait and be patient. And those things are not excluding one another. Judgment belongs to the Lord, and David is unwilling to usurp God's role in this matter. It stands in great contrast to Saul, who earlier in chapter 15 and in chapter 13, took upon himself the role of the Lord and the role of the priest and began to take more for himself than just the kingdom and just his role. To do things that God had not given him to do. David is fearful and unwilling to approach such a thing. And he comes out in this humility and grace, and it's for the sake of the Lord, and it's for the sake of God's glory and not his own. And as he does this, he brings the truth and lays it out before Saul. He, he does it in a way that is very skilled and very well-crafted. He approaches this ancient proverb and says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. I, I am not killing you. I spared you, so I'm not wicked. But then, paralleling that language of the proverb, he says, After whom have you come out, Saul? I didn't listen to the men around me, and I spared you. Who are you listening to? Whose words are you listening to? And this is Another piece, this is the, the title of the message for today I want you to consider, is whose words? Whose words do we listen to? Whose words do we hold in our heart? Do we allow to govern our actions? Where do we put the weight and the authority? Where do we consider wisdom to come from? Is it the loudest voice? Is it the things that sound pleasing to us? Is it just whoever has the majority And David lays out the truth, and he presents it in such a way that Saul and anybody within earshot knows it's a conviction, it's a judgment upon Saul. You can't get around it. You can't answer these questions in such a way where you can come off as the good guy here, Saul. But not only does he do that, but David says, God judge you. God judge me and you. God, I'll call God to be witness between us. I call him, and you know what? I'd like him to do it right now. But I'm waiting for him to do it. I'm not taking it into my hands. But you better believe I'm praying for it. That relationship 
has been completely broken by the sin of Saul at this point, and there's no going back. But David, even as he waits, he prays for God's justice to come and be done in God's timing by God's hand. God, this is your person. You anointed him as king for whatever reason. You deal with him. You've seen his life. You've seen his actions. You've seen my life. You've seen my actions. You've seen how we've treated each other. Everybody else here has seen it. May God judge between us. And he leaves it in God's hands. And the last piece we see is Saul's response here in these following verses. Let's read that. In verse 16, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The last piece that we see here is this broken confession from Saul. Within it, we see there's a recognition of guilt. There's absolutely a a resignation to the inevitable at this point. And he's saying this now for the first time, not only in front of David, not only in front of his men who might be able to hear from within the cave, but also in front of his whole army. How much could they hear? I don't know, and I'm not sure it really matters. But there is a change at this point in Saul, though not one towards a true repentance, unfortunately. We see that he continues on in his wickedness. He continues to pursue and seek for a way to preserve his own kingdom, his own lineage, his own reputation. You know, here at this point, he's still concerned with himself, with his own legacy with how others are, think of him. Just please don't cut off my line. Just please don't completely destroy me. Please continue to show mercy. And David promises just that. It was an oath that he gave readily, much earlier, to Jonathan, Saul's son and David's friend. And Jonathan knew much earlier and told David, the kingdom's going to be yours. It's not going to be mine. I'm the crown prince. I'm the rightful heir. It's going to you. I know this. Just treat my family well. And not only did Jonathan know this, and not only did he tell this, but he continued to help David over and over and over again to support David, to love David, 
Jonathan gave the resignation and, and the recognition of, of David's rise to authority gladly, but his father Saul did so only reluctantly after much shame. And even after having accepted it, was still rooted and weeded with bitterness. And this really does mark a transition point, because at the beginning of chapter 25 is the death of Samuel. The judge, the one who had kind of held the people of Israel together, even in the midst of the turmoil and, and the back and forth of God's people under Saul and people wondering about David, Samuel dies. And only a few chapters later after that, Saul is killed in battle as well. And David does become king. But as we consider this passage, I want us to think and, and to really weigh carefully God's word to us this morning. Because there's a temptation for us to take the wrong conclusion away. That we see David not rising up against Saul and we think, well, we just need to just wait. We just should sit back. We should not do anything against any enemy, ever. Well, that's foolish, and if you read the rest of David's life, you see that he is absolutely a man of action, that he is the one who slew Goliath when none other would stand up against the enemy of God's people, that he was the one who did battle against the Philistines time and time and time again, and that he had no problem once he was ordained as king by the people of Israel, and once his kingdom was fully secured, he had no problem fighting and leading people into battle against God's enemies. He had no problem executing kings. He had no problem judging the people of Israel under God's law and seeing that those punishments were dealt out. He didn't have a problem with that. So how do we balance the man of action, David, who does not take action here. And how do we know when we should be men of action, people of action, and when we should be people who wait? And I want you to consider it in these terms. To whose words will you listen? This is the key. To whose words will you listen? This is, needs to be our attitude. It's the attitude we see in David, and it needs to be ours as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ today. The first thing is we need to be seeking his glory and not our own. We need to be seeking Christ's glory, not our own. This is the key to everything. It's the reason that when Christ was on the earth, he taught and he said, seek the kingdom first. Everything else will be added. Christ's glory, not your glory. Now here's the thing. It's going to be hard because people will hate you. People will treat you unjustly. People will mock you. People will come after you and after those close to you for no other reason than you are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they do not want to have anything to do with his lordship.
Because when we say Christ is Lord, Christ is King, he's everybody's King. He's everybody's Lord. Doesn't matter whether or not you acknowledge it, he is. And when we are concerned with his glory, not our own kingdom, not the offenses that are against us, we're not worried about defending ourselves, then we can begin to act on behalf of God's kingdom and not our own. When David was king, he acted as a king for Christ, for the Lord. And he ruled in such a way as to reflect that. It was not perfect. We're definitely going to be talking about that in future sermons. But that was his perspective. And when he was a soldier, he was a soldier for the Lord. And when he was a shepherd, he was a shepherd for the Lord. Wherever David was, he was concerned with God's kingdom, with God's people, and not with himself and his own kingdom. Even though God said, you're going to get the kingdom. So wherever God has placed you, whatever you may have in terms of authority or ability to affect others, to bring about God's word and God's glory and God's kingdom, you should be exercising that with that intention to see God's glory spread. We're going to get to that in a second, a little bit more. The second thing I want to encourage us is that we need to entrust ourselves to Christ. I touched on that briefly as I was talking about it's about God's kingdom, but it's a two-part thing. In order to really be fully desiring and zealous for God's kingdom, you have to surrender yourself. You have to entrust yourself to God. I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to worry about myself. Now, there are people in my life I do pray for and worry about and protect and do things for. But in regards to myself, I don't need to worry about that. God has me in his hand, and so I trust God. God, you take care of me. I'm concerned with whatever you're concerned with. And so I can do things that a person who doesn't have that perspective can't do. Why? Because I... If God has me, then what could possibly harm me? What could possibly come against me except what God has allowed? And if God has allowed it, it's for his glory and for his kingdom, and so bring it on. How do you sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, even when you give and take away? How do you sing that in the desert place just as much as in the place of abundance? Because his kingdom is secure and advancing, and because I am in his hand, I trust him. And the last thing I'll say is this in terms of our perspective. Seek his glory, not our own. Entrust yourself to Christ. Live by God's standard and encourage others to do the same. You ought to be encouraging others to live according to God's standard. You ought to be constantly pointing to God's standard, to God's word in your life, in the way that you live and in the way that you speak to others. That goes for in the, how, the home, the household, right, to your family. That goes for your coworkers. That goes for any people that work under you, 
right? That also goes for any person who has any kind of political power, of which, for whatever reason, and by God's providence, all of us have an ability to influence what happens in government and in the world around us today. And so we should boldly encourage and point and push for God's kingdom in all things, in every element of power, with every ounce of your being, you should be surrendered to that thought. When you work, you should work like a Christian, because you are one. When you parent, you should parent like a Christian, because you are one. When you vote, you should vote like a Christian because you are one. That means you can't support wickedness in our society. That means you should seek and encourage and try and find people who will stand against the wickedness in society. You should protect the people who can't protect themselves. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. When we do these things and we live by God's standard, not by the standard that people point to, not by the standard that everybody around us may say, but by God's word as our guide, we can go forth boldly. We live in a very strange time where people lack courage to stand up for what is true and somehow also are negligent in every other area as well, that, that, that people aren't brave and people can't stay out of it either. And we need to come back to God's word as a people. We need to come back to him with courage, with hope, with conviction. Last week, as we talked about David and Goliath, I said, you know, God is winning. Christ is winning. He's fighting and he's winning. And so we should be a people of hope. We should be a people excited and energized by God's word. Going out into the world and saying, God, how, how can I see your kingdom further today? How, how can I share with somebody about what you've done in my life? How can I see even just a couple steps forward of your kingdom this day? Living according to his standard, encouraging others to do the same. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll close out with one more song of worship. Lord God, I do ask that you would allow us to hold fast to your word, that we would be convicted to be a people of courage and of patience, trusting to you, Lord God, the things that should be entrusted to you, and being a people of action as we follow you in the places where you invite us to, that we would seek to be faithful to your word and to your kingdom in all areas of life, and that we would seek to bring every ounce of ourselves under your kingship, Lord Jesus. Because you're a king unlike any other, a king who did not attempt to 
force yourself upon the world initially, but rather you waited, you sacrificed yourself on the cross, and in doing so, you redeemed for yourself a people. And we are that people, redeemed by your blood. And now, Christ, as you advance your kingdom, we ask that you would open our eyes to join you, follow you, and to love you and desire you more than anything else in this earth. In your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you very much, and God bless.